Well, good morning. You could take your Bible and turn to the book of Acts, the passage that was read for you uh, earlier in the service, chapter 9. Our text this morning uh, spans a number of verses, but we'll begin in uh, verse 26, the story of how Barnabas uh, takes Paul to the apostles even when nobody else uh, believed in him. Acts chapter 9, we'll begin in verse 26. Uh, and if you're new here, I, I want to let you know what we're doing here in our, in our services, uh, our time in the Word. We're focusing on the book of Acts, and we've been on a journey through Acts. And what we are learning from this, it's like the history book of, the early history book of Christianity, is that the work that Jesus began in the first century didn't end after Jesus, when Jesus died, or even after he ascended to heaven. It didn't end then. The work of Jesus actually continues. Uh, we look at what's going on in the world today. Christianity today is by far, well, not by far, I think, but at least it, it is the greatest, uh, the, the religion with the no, number of greatest adherents. How did this happen? How in the world did a movement that began with a peasant from the far-flung region of the Roman Empire, how did such a movement now become a global worldwide movement? Where, where, how do you explain this? You explain it from the fact that Jesus' work didn't end then, but it continues, and Acts tells us how. It tells us that Jesus' work continues to break all kinds of boundaries. It breaks cultural and racial and ethnic boundaries. It continues, and, and that's what we're learning. But we're learning how it continues. The work of Jesus continues through his word and his spirit. And by word, I mean this, the message about Jesus. That is the proclamation that Jesus of Nazareth died on a Roman cross, was impaled to this piece of wood as a, a mode of crucifixion. Three days later, he shattered death by rising again. And he is therefore the son of God. He is the Lord. He is the savior of humankind. And if you believe in him, you can be saved. That is the word. And when people receive that word, they also receive God's Holy Spirit. And that unleashes such a force among people that has never stopped right up until today. So that's what the book of Acts is all about. It teaches us how Christianity began and how it continues. Right? But it's all, we're finding that, that Acts is incredibly relevant for us today because, as I said, there are so many adherents of Christianity, so much of what goes under the name Christian is Christian in name only. And therefore, one of the values of the book of Acts is it teaches us what authentic Christianity looks like. If you want to know what authentic Christianity looks like, please don't slurp from the puddles of the contemporary cultural scene. Don't, don't sip from the polluted waters that we see flowing all around us in pop Christian culture. If you want to know what Christianity, authentic Christianity really is, take a deep, long drink from the bubbling source from the stream called the book of Acts to see what Jesus really does when people are transformed by believing in him and being filled with the Holy Spirit. That's why the book of Acts is so incredibly relevant to us today. We can easily become lulled into thinking that what we're seeing and experiencing is real Christianity. And then we compare what we're living and how we're living with this powerful book of Acts and see what Jesus really does when he transforms people's lives. That is so relevant to us today. Now, 
doesn't it stand to reason that if the book of Acts is about how Jesus continues to work, his spirit is now in people, it's going to reverse the damaging effects of sin in every area of life, including the relational effects of sin. I mean, can you, can you just take for a moment to recognize with me that sin that is choices that we make in rebellion against God and, and our self-centeredness, it destroys relationships. It hurts. It causes pain. It fractures people. Can we expect then that when Jesus begins to transform a person's life and the Holy Spirit is now in that person, then suddenly instead of self-centeredness, there is others-centeredness. Instead of it being all about me, it's all about God and serving other people. And this healing process is what begins. And we see this, this relational res restoration, we see this healing process going on in the life of this man named Barnabas that we read about. Barnabas is an example of the kind of friend everybody wants, but few actually dare to be. And, and so what we're going to do in this this study, this sermon, is we're going to study the life of Barnabas because we really need to know what authentic Christian friendship looks like. And, and before I jump into this, before I tell you the division of, of this mess and how it's going to unfold, I just want to tell you uh, why this is so important. And I'll start out this way. Some of you know that I love Aesop's fables. I really do. I, 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 read, I have a book uh, that contains some of them to my kids. I love reading them. I think I love them more than my, my kids love Aesop's fables. But there's one of my favorite of Aesop's fables as a story about uh, so a group of friends or mice living in a house. And uh, everything's happy, everything's great in this, this, uh, this house these, among these mice, but they have this one problem, and it's the cat. And, and the cat uh, is, would sneak up on the mice noiselessly, and when they're least expecting, snatches one of the mice and eats them for breakfast. That's a big problem. So the mice friends, they gather this, they hold this meeting, and they decide, okay, what are we going to do about the problem with the cat? And after hours of debate, one of the mice uh, stands up. He says, I've got an idea. I think it's a brilliant idea. He says, if, if we, you notice that we can outrun the cat, we can outsmart the cat, but we're not strong enough for the cat. So if there's a way that we can be warned in advance of the cat's coming, then we can run away and we'll be safe. So what if we tie a bell around the cat's neck? That way, whenever the cat comes close, we'll hear the bell and we'll be able to run away and be safe. Well, after that brilliant speech, he got a round of applause and everybody thought it was the best idea they'd ever heard until the oldest, wisest mouse stood up and he said, I agree that this is a brilliant plan. I just have one question. <laughs> Which one of us is going to tie the bell to the cat? I, I tell this story because I think it illustrates a problem that we, we often have, is we all want a friend who's courageous and sacrificial, but few of us dare to be that friend. And I think this problem that we find resonating with on our own hearts, uh, we, we see also intensified by the culture around us. Uh, a recent poll that I read shows about friendship that back in 1990, 75% of Americans have what they consider to be a best friend. 1990. Fast forward to 2021, and that number, 
uh, of people that said they have a best friend declined to 59%. There seems to be a decline in people saying that they have a best friend. And that same poll tells us that 15% of people say they have lost a good friend over politics. I mean, friendship we see, in de- we see is in decline, and we find in our own hearts this kind of tension that, yeah, there's a kind of friend that, that I want to have, a friend that's loyal, it's courageous, that's sacrificial, but dare I be that friend? Barnabas was that kind of friend. He was the kind of friend that everyone wants to have, but few want to be. So let me just introduce you to Barnabas, and then we'll, they'll walk, we'll walk us through it. Actually, I want you to turn back in your Bible to chapter 4, where we first are introduced to Barnabas. We, he first uh, appears on the scene shortly after uh, this Christian movement begins, and we, we are introduced to him at the end of chapter 4, beginning verse, 34, uh, verse 35 36, excuse me, he's called Joseph, that's his, his given name, but he was also called by the apostles Barnabas, and, and the meaning of Barnabas that Luke gives here is son of encouragement, so what we're told here is that, that Barnabas was a nickname that the apostles gave him, and he had this nickname because it was well-deserved, it means son of encouragement, which tells us right after that this about Barnabas, he was a really encouraging guy. Uh, this son of something is an a old Hebrew expression that whatever a person is a son or daughter of is something that characterizes that person. So in the Old Testament, you have some people that are called sons of worthlessness. It's just another way of saying these are really good-for-nothing, worthless guys. Or, or someone uh, can be called a son of Belial. That's a, a false god, a very similar meaning. A son of encouragement was, a, or a son of destruction. There's another expression. Son of destruction means a person that deserves to be destroyed. A son of encouragement is, is another way of saying he was a really encouraging person. This is a nickname that the apostles gave to Barnabas. And, and we see why they gave this nickname to Barnabas as his life begins to unfold b- before us because the very next thing we see is Barnabas displaying incredible generosity. So Barnabas is the friend that we need to have but few dare to be and we're going to look at his life in three parts. We're going to see what he gave, what it cost him, and how he could afford it. All right, Barnabas, son of encouragement, what he gave, what it cost him, and how he could afford it. So first of all, let's look at what he gave. What he gave. Two main categories of the things that Barnabas gave. The first category is he gave financially, and we see this in the passage that you just turned to. Uh, This brief description of Barnabas tells us several things about this man. It tells us, first of all, the setting is Jerusalem, ancient Jerusalem, but he wasn't native to Jerusalem. He was native to an island in the Mediterranean called Cyprus. That's where he was from. Uh, Nevertheless, he had moved to Jerusalem, and the fact that he owned land in Jerusalem tells us that he was an incredibly wealthy guy. Very few people actually owned any land, uh, and, and this, the fact that he could own land and also sell the land and give the proceeds tells us that he was very generous and wealthy. And incidentally, it tells us something else about the nature of the Christian faith, and that is when a person trusts in Jesus and then is filled with the Holy Spirit, everything about that person's life changes, including their finances. 
The reason why finances and money become such a struggle for people when they're pursuing it at all costs is because people often fail to see the reason why we have money. And when a person trusts in Jesus, then suddenly all that changes. They, they gain a different view of wealth itself. It's almost like people say, oh, now I see what it's for. This is not, my wealth isn't for me. My wealth is for the glory of God. And that's one reason why Barnabas was, so, was able to so generously give, lay at the apostles' feet the money so that it could be given to feed the poor there in Jerusalem. So what he gave, he gave financial support. But, uh, but beyond that, I think even more tellingly, uh, Barnabas gave personal support. He gave personal support. And that's uh, what we see in chapter 9. Now, the setting of his personal support is the conversion of Saul of Tarsus that we looked at last Sunday. And if you recall, or if you weren't there, I'll, I'll just remind you, Saul was the, um, he was the bane of the Christians. Uh, his agenda was to shut down this Christian movement by throwing uh, Christians in jail because he genuine and sincerely believed that Jesus of Nazareth was a dead imposter whose movement ought to be silenced. Paul genuinely believed that. And because of that, he had letters from the officials in Jerusalem to go to Damascus to arrest people. And, and everybody's really scared. The Christians were really, really scared of this guy. And when he gets to Jerusalem, the, you, you see in verse 14 of chapter I'm sorry, in, in verse 26 of chapter 9, when he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were afraid of him because they didn't believe he was a disciple. I mean, Paul was like the cat that the disciples didn't want to put a bell on. He, he was the bane of their existence. He terrified them. And so what, what was he to do? He was rejected by his own group the, the, the religious leaders, because he had turned on them and confessed Jesus as the Messiah, but he was also feared by the Christians. I mean, Paul was a man without a country. He was a man without any friends. And yet when the religious leaders rejected Paul and when the Christians were afraid of Paul, there was one man, one person who said, I believe that what happened to you is real. And that person was Barnabas. Last time we saw Barnabas, he was giving generously of his wealth. Next time we see Barnabas, he is giving generously of his personal support. And this is really amazing. What Barnabas did in verse 27 was he took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord. Now, what Barnabas didn't do is he didn't just send a letter to the apostles and says, hey, by the way, I really think you should take a risk on this guy. I think, I think it's legitimate. He, he didn't just uh, try to start a, a movement that said, hey, uh, Saul's conversion is a real conversion. No, he actually personally brought Saul to the leaders, and that meant this. He was binding his reputation up with Paul's. That was a pretty big risk. He was taking a massive risk of his own reputation on, on the, his belief that Paul's conversion was a genuine conversion. He gave Paul his personal support. And, and just as a, an application to this, um, as far as what happened to Paul in his relationships, um, being a Christian will always have an impact on your social life. It will always have an impact on your social life. Um, claiming allegiance and loyalty to Jesus will always make, will, will never allow people to be neutral toward you. <laughs> I mean, if, if you think that you can be a Christian and follow Jesus, and, and yet your social life remains intact, 
you, maybe you don't understand what it means to follow Jesus. For Paul, everything changed. And everything change, will change for you too. Everything should change for you too when it comes to your allegiance to Jesus. Well, Barnabas gave his personal support to Paul by bringing Paul to the apostles. But it wasn't just to Paul that Barnabas gave his support. This is what Barnabas gave. He gave of his wealth. He gave of his support. But we find him later on giving his support to someone else. I want you to turn to chapter 15 of Acts. Acts chapter 15. While you turn there, I know to summarize what's gone on uh, between chapter 9 and chapter 15. Here's what's gone on. Barnabas and Paul have now become missionary partners. They're traveling together. They've, they've forged a close bond of friendship. But on one of their journeys, Barnabas' cousin, John Mark, was with them. And they're traveling around and they're telling other people that Jesus is the Son of God, that he's the Messiah. And at some point along the journey, John Mark abandoned Paul and Barnabas. And nothing is said of it at the time until Paul and Barnabas want to go on another missionary journey. And Barnabas says, hey, let's take John Mark with us. And Paul says, I don't think so. He left us last time. And Barnabas said, I think we should take him. And Paul says, I think we shouldn't take him. You see what's going on here? There was this, this rift between Paul and Barnabas that began to get wider and wider. Look at verse 37. This is Acts chapter 15. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose such a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Now, this is the most famous dissension between Christians in Christian history. And it's between the great Apostle Paul, the Apostle to the Gentiles, and the great Barnabas, the son of encouragement. And they couldn't get along with you. They, they could not agree with each other. Their missionary, their, their missionary enterprise together was jeopardized because Barnabas wanted to do for John Mark what he had done for Paul. You note the irony of this now. Barnabas had taken a massive risk on Paul when nobody else would believe him. And now he wanted to take a risk on John Mark when Paul wouldn't believe him. True to his character, Barnabas is being the guy that sacrifices to give, to lend personal to support to someone who no one else would believe could actually change. Now, what is also interesting about this, the episode as Luke records it, is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit who gives us the Word of God, he doesn't tell us who's right and who's wrong. I think maybe this is like a Western culture thing. We want to know who is wrong. Was it Paul? Was, should Paul been a little more generous in his support? Should Paul been a little more believing that John Mark could change? Should, should Barnabas been a little wiser about bringing along someone who had disproven his character along a missionary journey? We're not told. But here's what we can learn from this, is that sometimes between Christians, disagreements arise even when both parties are simply trying to serve the Lord. This can be a very perplexing and, 
and troubling part of the Christian life, but it's a commentary on how weak and, fra and frail we are. Yet we do learn later on in the New Testament, whether it was Paul that changed, or whether it was John Mark that changed, or both, at some point later on, Paul wrote a letter, and to the recipient of that letter, he said, by the way, please bring with you John Mark, for he is profitable for the ministry. And yet we're not told that here, all we're told is that in, now instead of there being one missionary party, one missionary journey, now there are two. And in this, we see the divine genius of the Holy Spirit overriding even conflicts between Christians to multiply the work of God. And this is the point of this conflict here. It's that despite our own inability to get along, sometimes even as Christians, we're like, I can't see how that guy thinks he's right. And he's looking at me and thinking, I can't see how he doesn't understand he's wrong. And the Holy Spirit, in his wisdom, is guiding all this and directing it so that the, the, the imperative, the commission that Jesus presented in the very first chapter, you shall be my witnesses, it is not inhibited by human weakness. It is actually, it flourishes and continues. You can't stop the progress of the gospel. And this is, a, this is a theme throughout the book of Acts. How does the work of Christ continue? Through his word and his spirit. Now, the point, though, that we're, that we're looking at is the life of Barnabas. True to Barnabas's generous, giving character, he lends, he gives not only his finances, as he did in chapter 4, but he also gives of his personal support, not only to Paul, but also now to John Mark. But the irony is this. In giving his personal support to John Mark, Barnabas lost. I'll tell you what he lost in a moment. That brings us not only to what Barnabas gave, but to what it cost him. What did this cost him? Well, let's just run back through what we know about Barnabas. What did, what we, we said, we're going to look at Barnabas. What he gave, what it cost him, and how he could afford it. Okay, what he gave. Yeah, he gave his wealth. And he gave his personal support. He gave his personal support to Paul, and he gave his personal support to John Mark. What did this cost him? Of course it cost him money. I mean, that's the no-brainer. He gave money. He sold the land and, and, sent, and put the proceeds to the apostles' feet. But what else did it cost him? Well, it, he risked his reputation when he gave his support to, to Paul. Remember, I, I said it's not just that he sent a letter saying, hey, maybe you should uh, take this guy in as a genuine Christian. No, he said, I'm going to personally take Paul. So he bound up his own reputation with the reputation of, of Paul. But there's something else that Barnabas lost. And that is something that you'll, you'll pick up only if you're reading the narrative very closely. When, and I'll explain it this way. When, Bar when, when Paul and Barnabas were traveling around, for example, they went to this place called Antioch of Pisidia. They, they come into a synagogue. That's like a place where Jews hear the Torah read and learn from it. And the leader of the synagogue says to these two men, Paul and Barnabas, as they come up, he says, brothers... If you have any word of encouragement, please say it. So Paul and Barnabas are, giving, uh, an are given an opportunity to speak here in a Jewish synagogue. Well, Barnabas could have been like, did I hear a word of encouragement? I, I, I think I hear my name ca being called here. I I'm the son of encouragement. But you know who spoke instead of Barnabas in the synagogue there? It wasn't Barnabas. It was Paul. Now, we might not think of anything about that episode uh, until we begin to look carefully later on. And we, we notice that what Luke is, usually when Luke gives their names, he lists Paul first. And then there's another episode in chapter 14 where some people, these are uh, 
Greek people in Lystra, uh, after Paul and Barnabas uh, do this miracle of healing, they, they think that Paul and Barnabas are gods, and they call Barnabas Zeus, but they call Paul another, by the name of another god, it says, because he was the chief speaker. What's going on here? Barnabas's reputation is being eclipsed by the great apostle Paul. I mean, think about this, think about it this way. Before Barnabas came along, nobody even would listen to Paul. Now that Barnabas has given Paul his full support, everybody listens to Paul, and Paul is the chief speaker. What is Barnabas giving up? He's giving up the limelight. He's giving up the attention. What it cost him? It cost him wealth. He risked his reputation. His status was being diminished. But also, and I think this is probably most painfully, is that Barnabas lost a partner in the gospel. He lost his, his, his uh, travel companion in Paul. And he lost it because he gave his support to John Mark, whom Paul would not believe, who Paul would not trust. Don't you see how Barnabas is the friend that everybody wants to have, but few would actually dare to be? I mean, don't you see how, how we look at the life of this guy and think, I don't know that I could afford to, to be that kind of friend. This, this kind of friendship is costly. Now, here's what I want to do for just a couple minutes. The Scripture compares uh, the, the Word of God, the Bible, what I'm doing to you right now, to a mirror, and we need to look, our, look at ourselves in the mirror. That's what I want us to do, okay? This might be a little painful. It's like putting, it's going to be like putting a level next to a crooked line. We're going to see maybe how much off we are. But it could be, as I'm describing the life of Barnabas, you're like, okay, that's, that's, that's pretty good. Wow, that's pretty sacrificial. But I want us to think about our own lives and whether, whether we really believe we can afford this kind of radical friendship. Here's some evidence, if this is true of you, that you may think this kind of friendship is too costly. Are you reluctant to get, to clo to get close to someone when it might mean that their talents, their looks, their personality, their charisma might outshine yours? Are you reluctant to be, to, to be seen with someone whom others don't trust out of fear that they may transfer their flaws to you. I don't, I don't know if I want to get too close to this person because if I'm close to this person, then other people, people whose opinions I really value might kind of see me in association with that person, and I don't know that I want to risk that. Are you stingy with your affirmation of other people? stingy, miserly with genuine, sincere compliments. Can I get even more personal here? Husband or wife, are you afraid to genuinely compliment your spouse? To give him or her those words, those life-giving words, and I mean compliments, I mean words of affirmation that are, have, that are not a backhanded insult, <laughs> that there are not a passive-aggressive kind of thing, that are not any desire to manipulate, but words of genuine encouragement and affirmation. 
Or do you kind of, are you really, do you feel for some reason really reluctant to give those kinds of encouraging words? Or unwilling to comment on something that they're actually doing right? Or to give someone else compliments that you, you really like those for yourselves, but do you feel reluctant to give those kind of compliments to others? Let me get uh, personal on another level. Moms or dads, do you starve your children of the affirmation that they need? You, you see their eyes hungry for words of, of encouragement and, and affirmation, and yet do you withhold that, hold that from them? M maybe because you, you're afraid of, of losing some kind of control over them somehow, or because maybe you never were affirmed that way and you don't know, you don't know how that kind of currency of encouragement and affirmation uh, works. These are all evidences, perhaps, that we think that we can't afford that kind of lavish, sacrificial, generous support. I just have a couple more. I know this is painful. You wonder how I came up with this list? Are you afraid of going into a project or presenting idea unless you feel confident you'll get credit for it? I'm not talking about intellectual property. I'm not talking about for a grade. I'm talking about the desire to always want the success of something to be tied with you personally. Do you begrudge the success of others or belittle an idea if it didn't somehow come from you? You know, the life of Barnabas stands in stark contrast to that kind of of stinginess with affirmation or a desire to be in the limelight or to get the credit for things. Here was, here was a man who, who just gave it. And I wonder if the, re the reason why we are stingy with words of affirmation, jealous for the credit, hungry for the limelight, eager for the attention, is because deep down inside, we're afraid that there's enough, not enough to go around. Maybe because we feel that, that we have a shortage of credit in acceptance. But if your account was full, if you had all the acceptance, all the affirmation you can ever long for, if you knew that without qualification, there was, there was someone whose opinion you, you cared more than uh, and anyone else's opinion who, who would always accept and, and love you and lavish his, 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 his uh, acceptance up, upon you. If you knew that, then, then you would be full and you could afford that that we're talking about. You could afford to not be in the limelight. You could afford to give out words of affirmation and compliments. But I think the reason why is because we're stingy with it because we feel like we don't have enough. This leads us to the question, the final point uh, in the sermon is how Barnabas could afford it. What he gave, yes, he gave of his wealth, yes, uh, he gave of his personal support. What did it cost him? It cost him it diminished status, it, it cost him a, a ministry uh, friend, it cost him the limelight, it cost him, ultimately, you never read about Barnabas for the rest of the book of Acts. After chapter 15, no more Barnabas. That's costly. How did he afford it? How can we afford this kind of lavish, sacrificial friendship? Well, the answer to that is found in this description of Barnabas in chapter 11 that was read for us earlier in the, in the service. 
As you turn there, here's the context. The, the good news, the, the gospel, the message about Jesus has spread into, a, into the city of Antioch and there are non-Jews there. Non-Jews, Gentiles, are receiving and believing the good news and to a Jew who always considered the saving program of God to be limited to ethnic, or, or usually they would consider it limited to the ethnic uh, Jews or at least those who had embraced uh, uh, the become Jews, so were they, they, they were a little, they, they were curious about this. What is actually going on in Antioch? Has, is God really rescuing people, non-Jews there in Antioch? And so they send someone to, to investigate. Who do they send to Antioch to investigate what's going on? They send Barnabas. Look at this for verse 21. And the hand of the Lord is with them. A great number who believe turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came and saw the grace of God, what was Barnabas' response? He didn't, response? he didn't respond this way. Oh, no. If these people are getting God's grace, is there, enough, is there going to be enough grace to go around? No. When he saw the lavish, boundless Grace of God spilling over beyond Jerusalem and Judea to the uttermost parts of the earth. He did not begrudge it. He was glad. It says he was glad. And why was he glad? It explains in verse 24. For he was a good man, and the key is here. He wasn't empty. He was full, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. The reason why Barnabas could afford to lavish words of encouragement upon other people, the reason why Barnabas was happy to step away from the spotlight, and the reason why he could so easily give up, yes, dear friends, so that the gospel could be spread is because he wasn't on empty, he was on full. What was he full of? What was this currency that Barnabas had enough of? It says he was full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. What is the meaning of that? That is faith in the gospel. That is the good news about Jesus Christ. Barnabas fully believed that Jesus had suffered on the cross, that Jesus had given up all his acceptance with the Father to lavish it upon him. That's what Barnabas believed. He was full of faith in the good news that even though we deserve nothing, we have a negative on our account, Jesus, who deserved everything, bestows it upon us. That's what Barnabas believed. He believed in the boundless, lavish grace of God. He was full of that faith, and he was also full of the Holy Spirit. Remember we said that the, the, good new, the, the work of Christ, how does it continue? How does it break all kinds of boundaries? It breaks all kinds of boundaries. It continues through the Word, which Barnabas believed, but also through the Spirit. And what is the Spirit doing? The Spirit of God indwelling believers is prompting them, is reminding them of what they have in Jesus. In John chapter 16, before Jesus was crucified, rose again, and ascended to heaven, he was telling his disciples what they would receive when they received the Holy Spirit. He said, this is what you have to look forward to. You're going to receive the Spirit, and he is going to take what is mine, Jesus says, and declare it to you. Here's what that means. The Holy Spirit is taking what belongs to Jesus, that is the full and lavish acceptance of God the Father, and he's going to say that to believers, it's yours. 
That's yours. That's yours. He will take what is mine, Jesus says, and declare it to you. And Barnabas was full of that. How could Barnabas afford this? How could he afford such sacrificial friendship? How could he afford to give up the spotlight? How could he afford to give up friendships? He could afford it because he was full. He was full of faith in the Lord Jesus and full of the Holy Spirit who constantly reminds him, Barnabas, this is yours. Now, my friend, you can afford such radical self-forgetting generosity only if you know that you have been shown such radical self-forgetting generosity. The Apostle Paul, in his second letter to the Corinthians, wrote this, and this is something that Barnabas knew as well. He said this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, can become rich. That, that is, it is Jesus' sacrifice on the cross that unlocks the key to this. That's why Christians can be radically generous. Paul, in the context of this passage here, Paul was trying to encourage the Corinthians to give money. And the way he did it was not to make them feel guilty. He didn't say, do you realize how many hungry, starving people are out there and yet you have enough to eat? How dare you people live like this when they're all available? Paul did not, he did not motivate them by guilt. He motivated them by the grace of Jesus. He says, he didn't say, look what those people don't have, although that could be part of the motivation. His primary tactic was to say, look what Jesus did. He was rich and yet on the cross, what Jesus did was this. He was willing to give up everything he had. The father turned his face away from the son. The son lost what was most precious to him. That is the full and free fellowship that he enjoyed with his father. He was willing to give that up. Why? To give it to you. Give it to you. To give it to all those who believe in him. You know, it could be that this sense of bankruptcy in your heart that has been revealed just in this seemingly common topic of friendship reveals to you something very important that you maybe never realized, and that is you haven't actually trusted in Jesus to rescue you. It could be that you need for the first time to put your trust in Jesus as your King and Savior as the one who can credit to your account all the righteousness that you can ever ask for. Or it could be that you have believed that, but you've just forgotten what's in your bank account. <laughs> you've forgotten what's in your bank account. You can afford this kind of radical, self-forgetting generosity only if you know that you've been shown this and you've been shown this in Jesus Christ. Would you bow your heads with me? In just a moment, we are going to sing in response a song, My worth is not in what I own, 
And I hope that you'll sing that as a response of your heart. For now, though, would you take a quiet moment to think and pray? Maybe even jot something down on a piece of paper that maybe you need to talk to somebody. Maybe you need to make a phone call after this. I, I don't know. Whatever God is doing, whatever the Spirit is prompting in your heart to do right now, don't, don't ignore that. Our Father, thank you for what you have shown us in Jesus Christ, our Savior, who suffered and died and rose again. And I pray for anyone right here in this room wrestling with something, wrestling with, with a, uh, in a relationship, or even wrestling to uh, resisting, maybe even what they know they need to do, and that is put their full rest in you as their Savior. I pray that you would win that battle in their heart. Help us now as we respond by singing. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Jake, would you come?